Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Or someone you know has a child with autism in their family, answers and support can be hard to come by. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio with host Dr. Bill Freya. We will offer practical information for parents of children of all ages, as well as explore treatment topics and recent research related to autism. Now, here is Dr. Bill Freya. And welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Freya. I'm a clinical psychologist and the co-founder of Autism Spectrum Therapies. AST is a national agency serving children and adults with autism and other developmental delays. Uh, We've covered a lot of topics over the course of the show, and uh, you can find all of the shows on the AST website, autismtherapies.com. Today's topic is really at the core of our show's goal, to help families. And we'll be discussing different family issues. Our guest today is Whitney Pinion. She's a phenomenal parent and advocate. I'm really looking forward to having her share her story and some suggestions for helping other parents. Uh, These discussions uh, with different parents, different perspectives are, are always so helpful. Each one provides more insight into the kinds of support that families need. And I want to start out with one issue that comes up a lot, but never really gets enough attention from professionals, uh, those that are really helping parents cope with the different needs that they have, especially the early diagnosis. Uh, It's how you manage, as a couple, the initial stress of the diagnosis and all that comes after that. While many professionals focus on getting the family information on autism and a lot to read and a lot of websites and different resources, few focus on what the couple is experiencing in their home. And I want to talk about this a bit today because I think it's so important. We've had guests talk about the divorce rate among couples uh, once the diagnosis happens early on in their marriage. Raising a child with autism is always going to be a challenge, and the stress of dealing with the initial impact can really weaken communication and gradually break down that bond between the husband and wife. And we see that a lot. There, There are so many ways that raising children with special needs can take your eye off the ball the ball being the factors that keep a healthy family intact. Like I said, there's a disproportionate percentage of parents of children with autism that get divorced early in their marriages. And there are many reasons that this happens. But when you think about it, these are couples who are relatively recently married, often looking forward to building a family soon. And a child is born in this fresh new world that they've created together. And then they get news that changes their future. And that's a lot to deal with. And there's a lot of need for support how to cope and, and how to come together and deal with that. We, we talk about autism and the stressors and difficult decisions that come with raising a child with special needs, but sometimes we forget uh, what it takes to get through stage one, and that's 
building the bond, building the marriage it will take to cope, to support, and be successful together in managing all that's to come. You know, we hear about it. autism can consume, and that's true. Autism can consume you. You can make the mistake of making it your world. You know, unlike any other critical effort, it really does take a team. A team is stronger than individuals working in isolation. We know that a team communicating on strategy and agreeing on roles is the strongest approach to conquering any struggle, and autism is definitely going to be that struggle. Just think about all the decisions that need to be made and all the tasks that need to get done as a child develops. You know, think at the beginning, as, as a family, you learn to accept the diagnosis and the change that's just been made to the vision of your family's future. You, you grieve, you figure out together how to move on. This is the first opportunity also to grow apart, isn't it? That might be where many couples take different approaches to how they're going to cope. And uh, many never sit together or work with someone to sit together and figure out how to get on the same page and support each other. You know, and after, after you get through that, after the initial stage, you have to really get on the ball with early intervention. That's a huge stress stressor. There's the need to choose the treatment approach, and that's a big decision. You know, there are major philosophical and scientific differences between the available treatments, and a lot of room for discussion there. With so much writing on that decision, this is another point where couples can disagree. It's the first time that many couples have had to make a decision of this magnitude, a life-changing decision. You know, this isn't about the best neighborhood to buy your first house. This is about your child's future. You know, that's landed on the couple's plate. You can see why communicating and exploring together and respecting each other's worries and opinions is critical. And for many, if not most, a counselor or a therapist to mediate the discussions can be critical in keeping things calm, keeping the communication, ultimately the marriage intact. When you get past that treatment planning, the next major issue is school, attending the first IEP meeting and learning about special education. And we've heard from parents time and time again on this show as well as professionals um, referencing how they were never prepared for the stress and anger and disappointments that can be faced in the IEP process. I've seen parents scream at each other over uh, what got accomplished in the IEP. It's a, such a big deal and filled with emotion. You're agreeing on the classroom your child will be in for the uh, full year, at least. You're agreeing on the program, the goals for that year. You're agreeing on the supports he or she will get and often who's going to provide those services. Do you agree on the program, on the agency supporting the program, on the teacher, the curriculum? There's really so much at stake. And sometimes a parent will feel helpless and confused and then maybe ashamed about that. This can lead to taking it out on the other. Irrational behavior is not uncommon under this enormous stress. This is another point where couples may need to seek help. And no one should go through an IEP at any stage alone. And sometimes the stress is not really about just an event or a milestone. Sometimes there's just this growing stress about your child's future. Our guest today, Whitney, and I um, discussed briefly uh, this. Just when does a parent begin to worry about how their child will be able to and really, this happens early on. When the child's still very young, that worry begins. You hope that all you're doing will pay off and that your child will build on their skills, grow towards better and better independence. There's so much worry. Sometimes a parent will suffer with these fears quietly and maybe just being afraid to discuss them, maybe be feeling ashamed for some of their feelings, maybe being worried about what their spouse will think, maybe about being judged for the things that they're concerned about. When I spoke with our guest last week, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, 
you know, he mentioned how natural and important it is for parents to conceptualize their child's future. Uh, the importance of defining goals that they believe are important and building independence early on. And parents need to be able to work together to put those goals on the table, to try different things together, to take risks together and support um, each other. It's critical. You know, support each other through whatever outcomes, successes or failures. And this is difficult, no doubt. It's made more confusing because we often use the child's school goals, school program as the gold standard. This is what, what he's, he or she is working on. We reference that for you know, what our child's path is. I mentioned in our discussion last week just how bad schools are at preparing our kids for functional life skills, for a quality future. It's really not what they do. It's not what they do well. It's not what they intend to do. And how devastating it can be to learn this when your child is approaching adolescence or in their teen years. You know, there's so much to blame, so much to be angry about, so much that just doesn't seem fair. Couples need to support each other and work together to define what's best for their child's future. Divvy up those roles, come together to sort out the successes and the failures. And always remember to charge your battery. That's right. You, you rely on your cell phone every day to organize your life, to stay connected, and you never forget to charge that battery. The same is true for your relationship. I actually wrote a tip sheet on this that you can find on our website uh, where you have to work on a happy and successful marriage because so much is riding on that. You need to keep that sacred above everything else if you can. The stress and anger can overshadow this and result in severe damage and damage that can be really difficult to overcome. So first I suggest working together on the basic and most critical goal of giving yourself time to be alone together on a predictable schedule. This should be really a sacred vow, a promise to each other. We'll always have our time together. We'll make the time each week to be alone and to talk. And this reduces surprises. It gives a much-needed predictable communication to the marriage. It preserves time for intimacy, reinforces the respect you both have for your relationship, a commitment to staying together and supporting each other. And really, if either of you think that holding time for each other each week is not possible, then I worry. I mean, there may already be some damage done. I mean, I've heard excuses like, well, I work a lot or I, I travel a lot. Uh, we don't really need to plan ahead for that. We see each other every day. Well, you can't really be casual about it and hope that the stars align and there's a peaceful moment that you will hopefully get to be alone and remember everything that's on your mind and all the things you want to talk about, all the things that you need to figure out. And like I mentioned in the tip sheet, you know, the foundation of every healthy marriage is a strong connection that's viciously protected. Parents often think that, you know, the children, of course, come first. But I think it's, especially when you're raising children with special needs, you have to make sure that your relationship is healthy. And maybe that's first in being able to be centered, be prepared to deal with whatever your child's needs are. Giving each other as much respect, open and frequent acts of love and time. This helps to not only strengthen your marriage, but each of those acts add to the foundation needed to care for your children. Now, let me give one example of that. Um, just thinking of why this is so important. A conversation that parents will inevitably have is what to do to prepare for your child's future. It comes up. Uh, think about the context for when you have that discussion about your child's future. Where does that come up and what's the best outcome of that discussion? I mean, does that discussion happen when you get a bad report from school? When a difficult incident happens that causes you to stress and really think about the direction your child's program is going, where their future is heading? You know, how, 
having 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 that discussion in a crisis when there are unexpected stressors, it's it's going to be a bad idea, right? How how did this happen? Now what do we do? We need to do something now. What have you been doing anyway? Uh, we can't live like this. I mean, you see, the reaction is not the healthy one. That's the context of suddenly we have to talk. And what are you going to do about this? Heightened tension, anger, and blaming. I mean, that's that's the context of high stress and desperation. We see this a lot. You, you make yourself feel like a failure when that happens. You look for something else to blame when bad news hits you out of the blue. You realize your child's future is threatened, and you feel helpless and angry. And irrational behavior is, a nat- is natural under that condition. It's hard to have a productive or healthy discussion when that when something difficult prompts it. Compare that context to one where the couple is talking regularly. Even with that level of communication and planning, there will still be surprises, big surprises. But the planned weekly communication, the connectedness, protects you from a breakdown. Because you have a history of working together. You already know what your partner is thinking and how they handle things. And you instinctively support each other first and get on the same page. You don't want your child's program to suffer. You work immediately to address whatever goals need to be addressed, and you do it together. So when professionals are presenting on parent issues, they often focus on the stress of raising a child with autism. And yes, it is a high level of stress. But I can honestly say that I have seen autism bring people closer together with a laser focus on supporting each other to keep the family in a healthy and happy place. And this is so very important. It's important to the siblings as well. You know, Siblings can be made to feel the enormous stress of having parents we're distant, arguing, not agreeing, you know, in addition to having that brother or sister with autism. It's a lot to carry. You know, or they can feel comforted that mom and dad are in a good place and they're communicating, they're making good decisions for everyone and focused on all the kids' happiness. I certainly don't discount the, the, st- the stress, trust me. There's a lot of stress, but I do question those who may feel that autism is usually a marriage destroyer. It doesn't have to be. And I encourage you, if you feel you're heading down the wrong path and want to change that path, that you seek help. And it doesn't need to be a couples therapist that specializes in disability issues necessarily, just one who's good at working on communication and hopefully setting and supporting clear behavioral goals for the marriage. That's establishing and maintaining healthy routines together, lines of communication. And I encourage you, if you do interview therapists, to, to, to be clear on what your goals are and hopefully have that goal of creating and respecting time together and work with your counselor on how you can agree to use that time. You know, with that said, not all marriages are meant to be, and I respect that as well. But at least you may have an opportunity early on to test that out at a time when your child really needs you to, when they really need you to try. You know, another thing I'd like young parents to consider is how much space you're giving your spouse. You know, in in the tip sheet you can find on our website, I also discuss the need for some quality alone time. Make sure you get time to recharge, time to sit at a coffee shop, read a trashy newspaper, go for a walk or run, see a movie on your own, just unwind a bit. Make sure you're giving each other some space to breathe, some time to think about something unimportant. And I recommend listening to some music in the bathtub. I think that works for a lot of us. So take care of yourself, take care of each other, and you'll be in a better place to take care of your kids. Just something to think about. So we're going to take a break now. When we return, we'll be talking to parent and advocate, Whitney Pinion. Stay tuned.
Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. At Autism Training Solutions, we know what it's like to work with children with autism. And we know what professional development can do for a school, a child, and a family. That is why we want to give 50 schools in the U.S. access to ATS professional development for a whole year. All you need to do is tell us how ATS would make a difference for your team in a one-minute video or a 500-word essay. For a complete set of rules, visit AutismTrainingSolutions.com backslash contest. At Autism Spectrum Therapies, we understand how confusing funding options have become, as well as the difficulties that often come with seeking insurance approval. Our knowledgeable insurance team can help you become informed about your options and assist you in securing the services your child needs and deserves. Our client advocates specialize in obtaining pre-authorization for insurance coverage of AST's services. If you have questions about your insurance coverage, call our insurance team today at 866-278-1520. Everyone deserves a life filled with happiness, confidence, and achievements. Code Metro, developers of NPA Works Business Management Software, is proud to partner with Autism Spectrum Therapies and its efforts in creating futures for individual autism. To fulfill our duties, we promise a special needs product that helps organizations operate efficiently, providing them with a business system that evolves as rapidly as they do. The results? A streamlined practice to help maintain quality services. Discover how we help businesses succeed at NPAWorks.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio with Dr. Bill Freya. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That info at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Freya, and we're going to be talking today to a parent and advocate, Whitney Pinion. Whitney is an executive board member of the Autism Society of Boulder County. She's a writer and mother of an eight-year-old uh, with autism, Lucas. Whitney has been involved in the Society's efforts to create a series of autism training workshops for educators. She's also been involved in a significant uh, fundraising efforts, which have uh, helped many families in so many ways and have helped school districts with uh, much-needed resources. Uh, in her life, uh, before being a mom of a child with autism, she edited a radio uh, programming magazine in Washington, D.C., and managed uh, clients for a public relations firm in San Francisco and wrote a collection of short stories uh, when she was going through her master's program. Uh, after Lucas was diagnosed with developmental disabilities at 16 months and then with autism at age four, Whitney found herself using her writing and marketing skills to fill out bottomless piles of paperwork for her son and to coordinate care for him among a team of a couple of dozen teachers, therapists, doctors, specialists, respite providers, and most importantly, to advocate on his behalf. Uh, the mission that her new life has bestowed upon her is a passion for educating others about autism and for creating a safe, compassionate community and a rich life for her own son and for other individuals with autism. She believes strongly in supporting families struggling with their diagnosis and is truly a wonderful advocate in her community. It's great to have her here today. Uh, Whitney, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. Uh, let's just start out. Maybe you can tell us just a little bit uh, about Lucas. Sure, a 
absolutely. So Lucas, as you said, he's eight and a half years old, and apparently my husband and I were really prescient in naming him Lucas because his name means light, and I think he's just such a radiant, funny, loving, happy kid despite all the challenges that he faces every day. He's friendly to everyone he meets without any sort of judgment or pretense about him. Um, and my mother-in-law actually calls him a very soulful child um, just because of the way that he can connect with almost anybody that he meets. Um, as one of our friends puts it, he just gets to your heart. Um, uh-huh. And when I was pregnant with him, it's funny, looking back now on things that we said and aspirations we had, um, my husband was saying he just couldn't wait until Lucas was born because there was so much that he wanted to teach Lucas about the world. And the irony, of course, now <laughs> is that, you know, we have a kid who teaches us every day. Um, you know, about patience and just generally how to be better people. Well, and so tell us a little bit about your path and when, when did you suspect that there might be some concerns developmentally and what was your path towards the diagnosis? Well, it was a long and winding path. Um, so we were first-time parents. We still only have one child. Um, and so we didn't have another kid with him to compare Lucas, but we knew pretty early on that something wasn't right. You know, he wasn't uh, latching on initially to breastfeed. Um, he had a hard time sleeping the first year of his life, and he needed to either, you know, be held to sleep more than a couple hours at a time, or he had to fall asleep either in a car seat or really tightly swaddled or in his bouncy chair. He needed some kind of sensory input, you know, to feel safe and sleep. Um, he wasn't hitting his developmental milestones. He didn't crawl till 13 months. He didn't walk until he was almost two. And although he was babbling like other babies, he didn't have any recognizable words until he was about three and a half. And I think those were cup, ball, and da for daddy. He didn't say mom until I think he was four and a half years old. Um, So our first friends here in Boulder were couples that we had met through our Lamont class when we moved to town. And um, after our kids were born, when they were like 10 months old, we decided to form this play group. And just so we could hang out, our kids could get together. And um, I noticed that while these other babies were kind of moving around the room and playing with different toys and putting stuff in their mouth and checking in with their moms, you know, here was my kid who was totally content to just sit in the same spot for half an hour pushing the same button on the toy to make it light up or make a sound. Um, He would spin the wheels on his cars or he would just stare at his toys like he was in a trance. Um, And when he got really excited about something, even today he does this, his face lights up and his little arms tense up and his hands flap, you know, like his excitement is this um, like an electrical current surging through him. So long before he turned one, uh, we went to his doctor and we expressed, you know, our many concerns. And like so many other doctors who missed those early warning signs, she said not to worry. Lucas was completely healthy and, you know, all kids develop at their own pace. He was just taking longer to reach his milestones. But we kept going to these play groups and we kept being around other kids who were typical. And um, so it is 15 months of immunizations and a topic I won't get into, but at his 15-month shot and his well check, we finally said, listen, something isn't right. Uh, where do we go to get help? And she's like, well, he's probably fine, but call this agency that does early intervention screening. So we did. And um, at that evaluation, they said, yes, he has delays, but they couldn't give us a diagnosis, of course, because they weren't doctors. Um, so we were determined at that point to figure out the cause of these developmental delays. And we went to Children's Hospital in Denver. We saw a pediatric neurologist, a pediatric orthopedist, 
Um, neither of them, by the way, helped us really or offered any kind of insight into what was going on. In wow. fact, the neurologist kind of made us feel like we were just overeducated older parents who knew too much for our own good when nothing was wrong. Um, and the orthopedist was also a little condescending, but he did do x-rays of Lucas's hips to rule out any kind of structural problems, and they were fine. Um, in the meantime, he started receiving early intervention services through the county, um, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and we got him on a long wait list for an autism evaluation um, here in Boulder. By the time he got in for that eval, he was already 21 months old, still wasn't walking or talking, and he was having regular nuclear meltdowns because he was so frustrated that he couldn't communicate. So two weeks after this eval, uh, we went back in waiting for the worst news, only to have the psychologist say, well, yeah, it delays, definitely, but I don't think it's autism that we're looking oh, at. Wow. And, yeah, right? And so at the same, so it's, we were conflicted because we felt extremely happy, overwhelmed, like, like our kid had dodged a bullet, you know, but, but he still had problems. And it's like, well, if it's not autism, what is it? It's like somebody just kind of left us in the dark without a flashlight or a map and said, good luck to you, you know. Um, so we just spent the next two years searching in vain uh, for some diagnosis to explain what was going on. You know, he had blood tests, urine tests. Uh, we took him to Children's again for genetics testing, um, neuromuscular clinic. Uh, I mean, those places couldn't give us a diagnosis, but they did rule out things like fragile X and muscular dystrophy. What a relief. Um, you know, we even had a brain MRI done, which came back normal. And he was getting, uh, continuing to get OT and speech through uh, the county. And then we hired a private speech therapist and a private physical therapist. And it was only after three months of physical therapy, intensive therapy, that he took his first steps. So um, about this time, his private speech therapist very gently asked me, so have you ever considered getting a second opinion on Lucas? Um, and he was also at, when he was three, he was also in this um, preschool classroom. And the teacher also suspected autism. So, again, we got him on a long wait list, this time for a clinic in Denver. And right after his fourth birthday, we had uh, that evaluation, and they said, yeah, without a doubt, it's autism. So two, do two different clinics and two different answers. So between the time that we started thinking that there were problems to the time he was diagnosed was more than three years. That's just an, an amazing story, especially with all the effort you went. You did all the right things, very educated, um, a lot of opinions, and not until he was four years old. I mean, I, you, yeah. I have to ask. I have to ask you. I mean, going through all that, are there lessons you have uh, that parents might take away that that you tell other families when they're going through this? Oh, yeah, so many. <laughs> um, yeah, first of all, denial is a really happy place to live, but it doesn't really do your kid any good. I mean, I think we were so relieved to hear that first psychologist say Lucas didn't have autism that even though we kind of, in, you know, kind of suspected that's what was going on based on our reading and our instincts, you know, like I said, we let ourselves believe he had escaped. And to be fair, you know, at the time, we never read anything about autism that said, I mean, Speech and communication delays, yeah, check, check. He met those. But he had significant motor delays, and we weren't reading about any of that. That's why we went down these other paths. You know, I think we know more now. But back then, we were just sort of misguided. Um, uh, another piece of advice I would offer parents is trust your instincts. You know, I knew something. My husband knew something was wrong with uh, Lucas, and that's why we just kept pushing our doctor for all these tests and referrals, even when everyone around us was saying, He's fine. He's fine. You know, it just takes a little time. He's fine. And, you know, parents know their kids best. 
So they shouldn't let anyone who's deemed a, quote, expert make them feel otherwise. Um, Finally, if you do think that your kid has autism or maybe you've just gone through the dark days of receiving a diagnosis, uh, read as much as you can without overwhelming yourself. It's easy to get overwhelmed with all the information that's available online and in books, but there are some fantastic books. Um, I Right now I'm reading Dr. Martha Herbert's book. I think I told you about this the other day. It's called The Autism Revolution. And um, so she's a professor at Harvard and a pediatric neurologist at Massachusetts General. And her book is based in science, but it's extremely readable for parents. And it's probably the most helpful, hopeful book I've read in a long time, like little things that you can do to help your kid to make some significant changes. I can't recommend right. that book enough right now. We'll make, we'll make sure that we post that um, so that families, could, families can look it up on, on our website um, yeah. after, after the show. Let's yeah. take a, a brief break, and we'll, we'll pick it off. And I, I really want to hear where you turned for support after you got the diagnosis. Sure. So, okay, great. Um, we'll take a, a brief break. We'll be right back with Whitney Pinion. Stay tuned. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. At Autism Training Solutions, we know what it's like to work with children with autism. And we know what professional development can do for a school, a child, and a family. That is why we want to give 50 schools in the U.S. access to ATS professional development for a whole year. All you need to do is tell us how ATS would make a difference for your team in a one-minute video or a 500-word essay. For a complete set of rules, visit AutismTrainingSolutions.com backslash contest. Shepard Mullen Richter in Hampton is a proud supporter of Autism Spectrum Therapies. Shepard Mullen is a full-service law firm with more than 570 attorneys in 14 offices located in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Companies turn to Shepard Mullen to handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. For more information, please visit shepherdmullen.com. BDO is dedicated to service, from serving our clients to serving the communities in which we live and work. Through BDO Counts, our national corporate volunteer program, employees across the country volunteer their time, talent, and resources for the good of local communities. And now, BDO is proud to support Autism Spectrum Therapies. We believe in doing our best to make the world a little better. That's why people who know community involvement know BDO. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio with Dr. Bill Freya. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Freya, and we are continuing our discussion with a parent and advocate, Whitney Pinion. Yeah, Whitney, I, I really want to want to hear where you got support after diagnosis, where you recommend we get support, and I really also want to hear about navigating those special you had to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, well, besides reading as much as I could and crying with my husband and on the shoulders of some close friends of mine, I started hanging out with other moms who had kids with autism. You know, once we got Lucas diagnosed, we were able to transfer him from 
that preschool um, that had kids with various disabilities into one that was autism-specific. And so I got together one morning with a couple of the moms over coffee, and one of them suggested that I join a local support group that she belonged to. Um, so I don't know what, I, again, I don't know if this is denial or fear or combination, but it took me four months to work up the nerve to go out to dinner with this group of women. Uh-huh. I understand it's because they're a super fierce group of women, very strong, very smart. Um, but, you know, after hanging out with them, for a few months, I just finally felt like I had met my tribe. I had met my people. You know, these um, people understood me, my pain, what I've been through because they've been through the same thing. And um, that was the one of the hardest parts of this journey with Lucas, aside from not knowing for a long time what was going on, was just we felt completely isolated and alone. Nobody else that we knew who had kids was going through what we were going through. Um, you know, but my autism mamas, that's what I call them, they know. And they get me, and um, not only do we still get together several times a month for dinner or for coffee, but we also belong to a um, support group online, and that's through Yahoo. And there, are, at this point, I think are like 60 members. And so not only do you have that face-to-face, face-to-face like social relaxing content where you can kind of rejuvenate, recharge with people who get you, but then the online board um, allows us to kind of exchange resources, information, talk about therapists and schools and insurance and you know, any topic you can think of, um, we've talked about. And it's, it's, I don't exaggerate when I say that these women have saved my life. They have. Um, I'm grateful to them every day. So I, I highly recommend the parents who um, are new to autism seek out a support group in their area, and that can be as simple as um, typing, you know, Googling autism support in the name of their town or their city um, and just seeing what comes up. I mean, I know a lot of parents in this group who first would kind of stalk us online <laughs> just to get a sense of our personalities, you know, before committing to meeting any of us face-to-face. Um, but both of those pieces of that support group are uh, really vital for me. Um, so then I think your other question was about navigating school, public school. Yeah, I'd love to hear about the first IEP and, and recommend, recommendations you have for families preparing for those IEPs. Holy cow. Okay, so first of all, uh, Lucas was in school by the time he was three because of his significant delays. They put him in this preschool that wasn't right for him, but it was a start. And that first, the end of that first year when we had an IEP meeting, I didn't do anything to prepare. I think to prepare, I bought chocolates for the teachers, and we sat around a table for half an hour and chatted about goals they thought he should have for next year, and I was totally agreeable and completely clueless. Um, I didn't register at the time the significance of those early IEP meetings, you know, that this would be my kid's life for the foreseeable future. He was only three, three and a half, but I already needed to be thinking like 5, 10, 15 years down the road or however long he was going to be in public school. I knew nothing about special education law. I didn't know what he was entitled to. I didn't know our rights as parents. I mean, I was just relieved, to be honest, that he was in school around other kids and that somebody else was teaching him besides me and my husband. Um, and then once we got him into this autism intensive preschool that I mentioned, it was that was a blissful year. Here were people who had worked with a lot of kids with autism. They had tons of collective experience. Um, they were helping us potty train him. If they had, if he had meltdowns, they could handle it. You know, they just kind of got autism. And it was at the end of that year at our second IEP meeting that I really started to sweat it. And I invited a, a beloved therapist to come with us. And my husband came that time. And we really prepared, read the draft. We knew what we were going to say. And, uh, 
it, it ended up going really well. We liked the new kindergarten teacher he was going to have, the new special education he, teacher he's going to have in that school. And we left that meeting feeling like we were okay. So we've left the cocoon of the autism preschool, but he's still in the same building near some of the same people. He's going to be okay. So a month before school started <laughs> that year, we got a letter from that lovely special ed teacher saying she'd taken another job. Oh, no. And so, yeah, so we started Lucas's kindergarten year without a special ed teacher. Uh, thank goodness he was paired with this wonderful paraeducator, and her assistance allowed him to be in his general ed kindergarten most of the day. So he didn't need to be in, special, in the special ed classroom, which was a blessing in disguise because the teacher they hired in a pinch turned out to be a nightmare. I mean, she had no experience, actual experience with, with small children with autism. That wasn't her background. And oh, no. every meeting that we had with her, the sense we got was that she had the lowest possible expectations for our kid. And that to us was unacceptable. So about the same time all this was happening, the district, our Boulder Valley School District, formed um, a special education advisory council, and this was for everyone from parents of students with special needs to teachers, paras, uh, you know, all the way up to the director of special ed to get together once a month to discuss issues in the district and just to chat. And um, it was there that I it was like a sponge. I just absorbed everything that I could about the policies in the district, about legislation, um, and listen to the stories of parents with older kids to kind of figure out what was coming down the pike for my own child, um, which was really valuable because a couple months later, after I started going to these meetings, I had to call a meeting myself at school because, number one, we wanted to invite our private behavior therapist into school once a week just to observe Lucas and make sure goals were consistent at home at school. And the special ed teacher said, no, I can't give you permission to do that, even if you pay for it. Um, then we found out his occupational therapist at school had been missing his sessions and never making them up. I was so furious <laughs> at that sort of confluence of events that I made my first phone call to uh, a local nonprofit that has free advocacy services for parents. And I spoke to Ailsa, this fantastic um, uh, advocate, and she came to the meeting with us. She helped us prepare ahead of time, and we went into that meeting. It was like the magic combination of this passionate, fierce love for our son and the knowledge of what he was entitled to. And as a result, that was a very successful meeting. We made sure that he had his OT sessions uh, you know, compensated the following year at summer school, um, and the principal, who was at that meeting as well, give us permission to have our therapist come into the classroom. And I think that meeting was so critical because it gave us our sea legs. You know, it kind of gave us our, our confidence that we needed to get our kid what he was entitled to, you know, what he deserved. Um, and that led us to lobby the principal not to rehire <laughs> that nightmare of a teacher who was under a one-year contract. And as a result, we ended up being involved in the interview uh, process to bring in uh, different candidates, and we hired someone much better. The next year, first grade was much better. We had a great teacher in place. We liked the first grade teacher. Lucas was making progress because the teachers were challenging him because he had a special ed teacher who cared about him and made him work hard. And so when second grade started, we thought, fantastic, everything's in place. There's a great second grade general ed teacher, a special ed teacher that we love, and then, boom, three days before school started, the beloved special ed teacher uh, 
claimed she had a family emergency, and she left with no no notice. Oh, no. So here we were <laughs> two years wow. you know, later, again in the same situation, but this time much smarter. You know, at this point, we hit it because of SEAC, because of getting to know other parents in the autism classroom, uh, we were able to kind of galvanize quickly, organize, and um, the weekend we found out that teacher quit, 14 of, uh, there were 14 emails within two hours that went to the new director of special education in Boulder Valley. And we requested an immediate, you know, meeting with him to discuss the crisis at our school, to not only hire a teacher to replace the one who left um, and how we might be involved with that, but then also how to address these deeper systemic issues at our school where we had such high turnover. You know, we've had three years with three different teachers, and that was not fair to our kids. So um, it was a contentious meeting with the director of special ed, and um, he got very defensive. I understand it was a very heated meeting. But the, the end result was good. We formed this um, autism classroom team of the parents, the teachers, the paras, the principal, and the point of that was to meet monthly, to keep lines of communication open, to increase the profile of our kids in our school who were always kind of like this invisible minority. Even their classroom was kind of like this secret place that nobody knew about. Um, so, you know, and now things... Thank goodness, finally, almost a year later, it feel more stable. We have a good teacher in place now who's done some amazing things um, in the last year. And But I have to say, even as well as things are going right now, I'm petrified that at any moment, <laughs> once again, right. somebody could yank the rug out from our door. Yeah. You know? And understandably, um, given, given what you've experienced, that you know things can change pretty quickly. It sounds like your experience was that you learned, you learned to fight for your kid early. Um, yeah. You would have liked to have done it earlier. But you did learn pretty quickly compared to what some other parents go through, and you and you also were able to build a community around you. I mean, getting a, getting a, a a bolus of emails that size, you know, has an impact on any administrator. What what yeah. what recommendations do you have for parents along those lines about getting the the nerve to fight and getting families rallying around the issues with you? Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, I think it's critical for you to have high expectations of your kid, no matter what you've been told about your kid in the past, whether the term, I hate this term, low functioning or somewhere in the middle, you know, I hate those adjectives, um, always have high expectations for your kids and encourage others to do the same, especially people working with them at school. Um, next, I would say educate yourself, learn about your kid's school district, you know, what the policies are, like I did at SEAC, um, you know, learn who all the People are up the chain of command from the paraeducator with your kid every day all the way up to the director of special ed and the superintendent. Know who those people are. If there's a parent liaison, uh, if there is in, in Boulder Valley School District, get to know that person. Familiarize yourself with that person because that person can be a great ally for you in working with the district. Um, the most important thing you can learn um, are your rights under special education law. And I have some another piece of information that you could include on the website after the show. Um, there's a book and a series of conferences called Rights Law, and that's W-R-I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W. It's Pete and Pam Wright, and they put on these one- and two-day conferences that teach parents about special education law and how to effectively advocate for their kids. Um, I can't recommend those conferences enough, and after that tumultuous kindergarten year for our son, I immediately went to a rights law conference. Um, of course, there are paid advocates, you know, um, that you could go to if, if, for instance, you don't have, um, I was really lucky when I contact, 
contacted an advocate that she uh, was free. Her services were free. I recommend finding out who the advocates are in your area, whether they're free or paid, although the paid ones can be pretty pricey. And, um, and then to kind of keep in mind special education attorneys, because you hate to think about having to go that route, but it's nice to kind of have that in your back pocket should you get so fed up with the district that you have no other recourse. Um, sure. And, yeah, finally, just get to know the other parents of the kids with autism at your kid's school. Um, exchange phone numbers, email addresses, because you can be each other's greatest allies, you know. And as a group, you have a much more powerful voice in advocating for your kids than you would um, as individual families. It's, I mean, it's, it sucks that parents have to be this vigilant and they have to be um, to work this hard where the kids' education is concerned. But the way I see it, you've got no choice. You have to be an active participant because right. you're your best kid. You are your kid's best advocate. You know your kid better than anybody else. Absolutely. So, and yeah. that's great advice. I think, I, I think well said. I really, I really want to thank you for joining us. You, uh, your story. I really appreciate sharing your story and, and all that you've had to offer, and some great recommendations. We'll be sure to put that information on the website as well. Um, oh, thank absolutely. you so much, Whitney. Really appreciate it. Oh yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show, Bill. Great. We'll be back in a minute with more Autism Spectrum Radio. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Parents of special needs individuals want to know if the care their loved ones are receiving is the best possible. We at Code Metro, developers of NPA Works, business management software for special needs providers, understand the unique necessities of running a successful organization. NPA Works helps free providers of tedious tasks like scheduling and insurance billing. Ensure your clinic is maximizing the time they give to your loved one. Ask if they use NPA Works. Visit us at npaworks.com to see how we can help. If you are considering how cloud computing might benefit your business, CenterBeam's Cloud Readiness Assessment can help. Our track record includes over a decade of service delivery experience, and our customer satisfaction leads the industry. We've moved hundreds of clients to the cloud and can help you identify the best strategy for your business. Call today to get a 25% discount on your assessment, 877-710-8880. The assessment is yours to keep and will provide specific insight into how the cloud can work for you. Call 877-710-8880 or visit centerbeam.com forward slash voice America. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Autism Spectrum Radio with Dr. Bill Freya. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. More at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Free, and I want to again thank today's guest, uh, Whitney Pinion. It's just so important for both parents and professionals to always hear uh, different parents' perspectives and different stories. Every story is a bit different uh, with different approaches to manage the seemingly impossible task of maneuvering through the maze of autism issues. 
Uh, I know that it sounds very redundant and obvious, but you know the big takeaway from almost all of the parents and advocates we've heard from is get support. And that's almost always at the top of the list. And be proactive in getting that support. And when we hear about the journey a family goes through, we understand that it's bumpy with new and more difficult decisions along the way. Getting support, support early on for each of those phases of the experience is so critical. And I want to close the show with, with bulleting the areas where we've heard the need to reach out aggressively to find support from other families, organizations, the Internet. Everywhere else you have the opportunity. And, you know, that, that first phase is support in educating yourself when you get the diagnosis. I mean, from the start, parents want to find out what current science and medicine has learned. They, they spend hundreds of hours researching. It's important to connect early with other parents to sort through what's the truth, what's the snake oil. You know, the concern is every day someone has uh, invented another product or a treatment. So be careful, get support, and vet out what you learn with other parents and professionals. Um, people want to talk to you about these things. They really do. And next, you know, get support in getting intensive early intervention. You know, from an evidence-based perspective, um, this means usually ABA applied behavior analysis as early as possible and as much as possible. Learn about the providers in your area. You know, what methods do they subscribe to? Because ABA is very different uh, in, in in different clinics and different different professionals do ABA differently. How good are their supervisors? That's so critical to know that, that people are managing your program with you that know what they're doing. Try to find an experienced parent to go interview them with you. And um, you can always look on our website because we have a list of questions that you can ask and, and recommendations for what to look for. Um, next, get support in strengthening you know, your marriage, your, your relationship, and communicating during this difficult time. You know, If you need to, and often you do find a good counselor or therapist who can learn, where you can learn strategies about preserving time, strengthening communication, uh, solving problems together. How do you problem solve as, as a couple? Uh, talk to each other about the, the need for staying close and talking regularly about what you worry about and what you need help with. You know, also, uh, you get support for preparing for your first IEP. We hear this a lot. Bring someone with experience. Um, who are the good advocates in your area? Find out. Ask everyone. Write them down. Talk to them. Uh, you should not go to an IEP, especially your first IEP, alone. You know, also, it's a good idea to find out the best special education lawyers just in case. You know, listen to our show that focused on IEPs and, and legal issues uh, with our guest Michael Jewell. It can be helpful just to have one single meeting to learn about your rights and the process of the IEP with a lawyer. It starts that relationship. You may or may not need it, as Whitney said, and usually they won't charge you for that first meeting, usually. You, know, you can ask them not to. And never stop thinking forward about your child's future. You know, his independence. You know, like uh, our guest last week, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, said, it's good to think about five years ahead. Uh, think about their interests and developing interests. You know, think about what might be future jobs, sample, doing job sampling early on, leisure sampling early on. Um, talk to the other parents about um, whether they have found support in the community. This is a big one, so really reach out to families you meet. Where are the best retail establishments, for example, to practice community skills and social communication? Uh, who is tolerant and supportive out there that can be helpful? Are there agencies that are providing community-based instruction? Uh, who are they? What are the types of things that they're doing? Another thing to consider is really don't lose sight of 
your community focus as your child gets older. You want to, like we talked about last week, take those risks, social sense, practical sense. What will they need to develop in the community? Are there agencies doing social skills in the most functional way? Uh, not just socialization, but behaviorally focused, meaning skill building, functional. Are you able to uh, get help from agencies in, in generalizing the skills your child is learning in the community? Will they be able to ask for what they need? Will they able be able to um, to meet with others and talk about the things they're interested in? And um, like Peter mentioned, and we, we don't talk about enough, is work on safety skills early on. Assume that there, there's going to be more community involvement, more community independence in your child's future, and think about the things that they need to learn. You know, uh, not just crossing the street, but things about sexuality, and um, all the things that they'll uh, eventually need to scaffold on, need to build on, uh, to uh, eventually have you know that first job. Uh, it's never too early to learn about how other parents are finding successes in building that career focus to their child's education. Job sampling, as Peter mentioned, is important. It starts early, you know, sampling interests, developing those interests, trying new experiences out, and doing them enough enough times to know if he or she really does care or not care about the experience. You know, don't give up. Uh, try new things, new places, new people. You know, failure is not bad. Uh, when you're doing this, you're, you're, these are future work and leisure opportunities. You're building a quality life. You're building options, and that's always good. I mentioned this is because these are the common areas parents need support. They're topics to explore with other families. Always keep your eyes open in the community for opportunities to learn more about how you can get support for building your child's future. Now, there's one thing I wanted to share with you uh, b- before we leave today. Um, you know, we had a great response to our show with Dr. Peter Gerhardt last week, and I mentioned that professionals as a whole much prefer working with the little guys, because we know more about those programs. Those programs are already oftentimes developed for us. It's easier. Uh, you tend to see more crop or more progress because of where our science is, where the technology is, you know, starting young. Uh, there just has, has not been enough research on how to best treat the needs of teens, young adults. Well, I wanted to share some good news. Federal grant money is being, beginning to move in this direction more than ever. It is something to celebrate. New methods and behavioral and educational technologies are being created. There is an awareness of this need, and hopefully the future will see more professionals coming into the field um, to work on adult transition. And most recently, this came out in news, uh, a five-year, $10 million grant was awarded to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill's Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute. We've mentioned Frank Porter Graham Center as a good website on this show before. One of my mentors, Dr. Sam Odom, will be uh, heading up uh, the new um, Center. It's called the Center on Secondary Education for Students with Autism Spectrum Disorders. Um, we know that more and more our kids are going into high, going into high school. We're seeing more kids, and they're needing uh, more practical skills. There really is not a lot known about what schools are supposed to do to prepare the kids, but we're getting some research now. The goal of this new center is to bring national um, special education leaders together to develop new programs, evaluate the impact on high schools across the country. And it's going to uh, it will develop a school, and more importantly, a community-based educational program in interventions for high school students with autism. The center is going to assess the effectiveness of those programs for students during, the high sc- during their high school uh, years and then follow them when they transition. The first two years will be focusing on developing programs, and then well, the three years will be spent actually testing those programs in the real world. So it's something to be uh, really excited about, and I think we're going to see more of this. So, you know, when you're building on those early uh, independent skills, I think, you know, you're going to see more and more support on working on those in the community and more and more realization, hopefully, from our school districts that, um, that as our, our, our kids approach those teen years, they're going to need 
to build skills in the community. And we're going to expect our, our schools to play more of a role in that. Because right now, as we talked about um, this weekend last, you know, more, so much of that burden is put on the parents to develop those programs. And, and right now, when we're talking about moving uh, towards adult independence, you know, I, you know, I'd say the vast majority of that problem solving, those building interests and building early skills are, are falling on the parents going into the community and finding support uh, with a vision of what they want their child's future to be. So um, I just want to share some good news with you. So thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and I hope you have a great week. Take care. We hope you've had some questions about autism answered this week. Autism Spectrum Radio can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Please join your host, Dr. Bill Freya, for another edition next week. Mm